Jonah, what's with the music? Where's the usual jazz theme? We needed something more festive than that, Bascom. We're celebrating. What's the occasion? Well, with the publishing of its February 2014 issue, the Journal of Cultural Anthropology is now open access. Oh. Why don't you explain to our listeners what that means? Well, before this issue, if you wanted to access an article in cultural anthropology, you had two options, basically. You could join the American Anthropological Association, what we call the AAAs, or if you had access to a university that paid a subscription fee, you could access it through your library. And if you weren't a member of the AAAs, and if you didn't have access to a good library, then you were out of luck. You couldn't read the articles. So how about now? Well, now anybody who has an internet connection can read our articles, and we're really excited about that. Right. So for the occasion, Anthropod Today is going to be all about open access. We have four interviews with some of the leading voices in anthropology working on open access, focusing on what open access is, how this idea got started in anthropology and the broader social sciences, and why cultural anthropology decided to go open access. And one of the things that we've tried to do with these interviews is not just talk about whether making these academic articles free to read is a good idea or not, but also we tried to highlight some of the nuts and bolts from the financial questions of how we can get quality academic articles published if we're still giving them away for free, to the issue of what exactly it means to publish as an independent publisher. Sounds interesting. But first, Jonah, can we get our regular Anthropod music back? Sure thing, Bascom. First up, Bascom, I understand that you recently got the chance to sit down with one of the editors from a uh, leading open access journal in anthropology. That's right. I sat down with Sean Dowdy from HOW, the Journal of Ethnographic Theory, and that's HOW spelled H-A-U. I talked with them about their experience founding an open access journal and how open access might provide a new model for fundamentally changing the ways that academics works. We're talking with Sean Dowdy, who is an editor of How, which is a journal of ethnographic theory. How did How, as a journal, get started? How began in February 2011 um, and was primarily the work of Giovanni de Col, uh, uh from the University of Cambridge. And uh, there's several people joined in the early in the early stages and contributed a lot of help. Um, but over the long term, it's been Giovanni as the editor-in-chief, Stefan Grohl as the uh, managing editor, um, and more recently myself, uh, and uh, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful staff of, of, of editorial assistants, associate editors who help us out, and especially our, our copy editor, Michelle Beckett, who is just absolutely fast, fantastic. And what's the significance of the name How? Well, we use the term how, the, the Maori concept, right? So going back to our uh, Marcel Mose, anthropologists were very much interested in the Maori concept of the spirit, what most translated as the spirit of the gift. We're really interested in the idea of the gift that compels its own return, the spirit that compels the gift back. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of symbolic capital in the term how, the idea that we're providing things for free and we hope that it will return to anthropology 
twice fold, threefold, and that this will be a, a new kind of gift giving that is, has that same spirit in it. So it's actually fundamentally linked to the idea of how as an open access journal then. Right. Uh, the, the concept of how and the symbol there, therefore, mm -hmm. is, is uniquely matched to both open access and the, the kind of intellectual side of how. So, right. Yeah. Maybe sort of stepping back one step, can you give us your understanding or your talk to us about what you understand by open access? Hal's definition is, is rather simple. Our definition is somewhat close to what they now call libre open access. In okay. other words, we provide free publications, that is, no author or user fees, while providing authors with usage rights, copyleft usage rights, meaning that we use a Creative Commons license that allows auth authors to reprint their work wherever they choose. So some people call this gold, but we see it in sort of our own terms because we like to say that how is about free gifts of peer-reviewed articles, uh -huh. book symposia, lectures, translations, classic and contemporary monographs, all with high-end copy edit, right. freely available, and more importantly, free to redistribute uh -huh. in educational and non-commercial settings, of course, as long as the source is properly attributed. But uh, the idea is that we want these things to circulate. And I think that comes with, with what we mean by access as well, because for us, Access is not just simply the question of reader access, readership access, right? right. Uh, for us, it's also about quality control and about the access for authors. So we tend to think that access should not mean sacrificing quality control. I mean, we have rigorous triple-blind peer review. We reject a lot of manuscripts. We mm -hmm. accept a lot, too. But we, we have a, a very strong editorial board and an external advisory board. So we kind of look at this as... We, we don't want how to just simply be a free-for-all. We right. want it to meet certain standards as well. So, And and also, just as an aside, copyleft is a term that's put in contradistinction to copyright, right? So, Correct. And copyleft, like you said, is you're basically opening up rights for people to more freely distribute works, uh, creative works. Absolutely. And academic works. I imagine you don't have to worry as much about... Um, the raw numbers of articles you accept or don't accept uh, in terms of, you know, worrying about uh, printing costs and the like, since you're an online <laughs> entity. Well, uh, I mean, all journals, whether open access or non-open access, have budgets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fundraising and budgeting are very, are, are very, very important for how and a very time-consuming task that we have to face all the time. I mean, right. we relied in our early days on volunteer mm -hmm. labor. Mm -hmm. And what we realized is that while volunteer labor is a very noble thing to do, it isn't always the most efficient and productive. And so what we've turned to are hiring professional copy editors, right. turning now towards hiring professional typesetters. And we continuously looked as we build more and more funds to try to do this as well, to sustain it in the long term, because, you know, we also don't think that people should not be paid for their efforts. I mean, right. if we're going to be radical about our intellectual <laughs> mission and our gifts, we should also, you know, make sure that people are paid for their work and, you know, that adequate labor is compensated adequately. Right. And because how is open access, that means that readers are not putting in any money. They're not inherently giving money to, to read articles the right. way they do with 
that the large majority of academic articles. But you also mentioned that part of your open access mission is not to charge contributors, Correct. Uh, which is which is another way that uh, some open access publications do make at least some of their money by yeah by charging contributors, right? And ha- yeah, and in Hal's current state, we do not charge authors right. uh, fees at all. H- has that posed special challenges for you all in uh, in in creating a sustainable publication? Yeah, I mean, I would I would argue that fundraising is is number one of the challenges that face an open access press like how uh-huh. uh, we work on fundraising and fret about it consistently. We write applications to major uh, trusts and foundations all over the world. We're we're planning to move towards a kind of Wikipedia model of donation soon. What, but, and what what sort of model is that? Sort of user user friendly donations, similar to the way Wikipedia does, where they'll post a you know donate to to how to save open access anthropology. Oh, so like having, you know, and a kind of button on the website yeah. to PayPal, you know, we're, and we're consistently coming up with new plans for how to raise funds. But the backbone of of how's fundraising has been has been what we call, what we now call the how network of ethnographic theory or how net. Instead of going through sort of time-honored channels of, of fundraising all the time. That would be like private foundations, public grants, et cetera, et cetera. That we go back to anthropology departments, institutions, museums, libraries, and get them to help sponsor. And HowNet is a way not just, so if, if we do like a, a three-year fundraising program with, say, the Department of Anthropology at Chicago, who is a member, Right. Of, of, of our network. Um, it's not just that the, the department or the museum or the library gives funds for three years to help how with its publication costs, but we also create a massive global network of departments and institutions who are interested in open access, that, w- that we will have uh, symposia, we're going to have workshops, we're going to have, we've already had a couple talks already. What this has done is it's allowed fundraising to not just be a bare bones, get the money, you know, and go. No, but to actually do things, and to do anthropology totally differently, mm-hmm. to break down uh, institutional barriers, to break down geographical barriers. Open access seems to be snowballing. Brian Masumi was, once wrote about citing William James. He said, reality snowballs. Huh. And <laughs> I think about this often about how, because what seems to happen is that as, as, as you continuously change the way in which open access is done is you continuously improve it. It gathers more and more steam. Mm-hmm. Um, it gathers more and more steam globally. People continue to debate, but they continue to work as well. Um, and how has just been working consist constantly. And I think that that, that cons- constant working is, is keeping it alive and is giving it a momentum that is very difficult to catch up to now. It's, it's, it's moved faster than we could ever have dreamed. You know, and, and there's a the, the shift in the product, both the production and the consumption of knowledge, is very timely. Yeah, the, the snowball effect is not to be disregarded. I think that there's a real, <laughs> a real element to that. Yeah. But, but now, cultural anthropology, you know, is yeah. going open access. Yeah. So we we're seeing we're seeing the move towards more journals of general scope in anthropology, yeah. and that, uh, you know, that contributes to this the snowball effect as well. So the editor-in-chief, Giovanni Decal, mm-hmm. uh, he's also the founder of How, 
the man, the managing editor, was also around from the very beginning, Stefan Kohl. Mm-hmm. Um, these two guys, and now myself included, uh, we really see how, uh, as being able to contribute to that global relevance of anthropology at the contemporary moment by by bringing people who are not involved right in intellectual debates back and from the margins back into the center well let me give you an example Mm. um i I work in northeast india and assam and i had a chance to do some teaching at a provincial university there regional university um gohati university Mm. and while i was there the frustrations among the graduate students, the PhD students in, in, in sociology and English and anthropology was that while they were able to, they were able to access, you know, some journals on JSTOR through certain licensing, right. that the vast majority of academic debates were simply out of their reach. The, the just the desire for it. people want to be up to date. <laughs> right, because it was just it was you know, I, I got tired and I got tired of it. I got tired of everyone saying, Can you print this for me? Can yeah. you get me a PDF? And I, I thought, well, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Yeah. And the work that we've done, Giovanni, Stefan and I, I mean, we really see this as being one of the central importances of of, of, of open access anthropology is to get the people we work with and the communities we work with not just intellectuals, but this could be anyone from NGO workers to, you know, a, a policy advisors, media, involved in anthropology as a global discipline. Yeah, it's, it strikes me that, that, you know, anthropology going open access could could actually create some qualitative changes in, in certain realms of anthropology. You know, getting more people involved in the global conversation is something that, at least, at least I look at that as being the motive behind why I'm interested in it as well. Sort of an, as an extension to that is is part of how's I guess, uh, mission, if you will, or is part of that mission to also open anthropology out to just non-anthropologists? Um, absolutely, absolutely. That's at, the, that's at the foundation of what we want to do. It's just I think the method and mode by which we go about it is a little different. Okay. Uh, than, than what might be expected. I mean, there are many ways to do it, and there's no right or wrong way. Uh, there are various different ways to, to interact with non-anthropologists, but how sort of sees, well, maybe there's also a way to do this at a more, how, I don't want to say philosophical level, but if we, if we thought about doing philosophy differently, which is what we do think about, uh, if, we, if we go to anthropology's roots and sort of work in the discipline, Right, build our strengths. Then we can, contri- mm. can contribute differently. Okay, and I, I I know you had mentioned that one of the things that's preoccupying you all in terms of thinking about open access and the open access movement is a particular kind of careerism that maybe has gotten in the way of open access being as quickly and widely adopted as it might be. Uh, yeah, and what I meant by that is it sounds a little vague to call it careerism, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I, I can put it in much simpler terms. Uh, what what we think um, is that there's a tendency for young scholars, uh, juniors, you know, junior scholars, people right. beginning just finishing their PhDs, just out of just out of the dissertation, working postdocs, even working in adjunct positions, but trying to build their CVs, right? Right. And the consistent fear that, well, you know, you got to, you got to, the publisher parish fear, right? You got to publish in the right places. You got to have established names and networks supporting you, so on and so forth. Yep. 
And there is, there has been a tendency to think that open access is not going to do that for people. And, you know, we think that that's, we look at that as, as just a blatant myth. <laughs> this is just, this is just completely false. Right. It does not have to be that way. So, so what do you, what do you think is behind that? Is it, is it an idea? Is it an idea, an attitude that open access publications will sort of inherently not be as quality and, and yeah. therefore not not get the respect that others will? I've seen a lot of this. I, I've compared it before to Roland Barthes in his book Mythologies had this great bed key called Operation Margarine. Operation which, Margarine. Yeah, which is, you know, his, his, his analysis of capitalist's commercial mix, right, which is, you know, margarine, it doesn't taste as good as butter. It doesn't have that natural quality to it. But gosh darn it, it's healthier for you. And gosh darn it, it's cheaper. It's cheaper to get. Right. So, you know, margarine is the way to go. And, you know, I look at that debate <laughs> where people are saying, you know, open access, great. Yeah, give it out. Free gifts to everybody. Woohoo. But who's going to pay for it? And at the end of the day, you know, I got to get that tenure track position. I'm going to give my work to a non-OA journal that's you know, uh, maybe a little bit more reputable in in, the, in in my mind, a more prestigious uh, journal. Right. Instead of taking the leap to say, well, you know what? Why don't we try to make open access prestigious? Right. So yeah, we're we're saying, you know, screw screw the idea that we can only eat margarine. I mean, we can have an intellectual <laughs> diet of something a lot better. So now we want to we we do want to create a new myth. We want to create a new story about what's possible. Right. And that means you know, combating the publisher parish story. And there's an opportunity now. And and that, like I talked about before, that momentum, that snowball effect, it's so strong that everyone I speak to feels it. Hmm. And and more and more people are seeing the, the you got to get on the ship, you got to submit your articles to, to OA journals. Right. I mean, it's our dream, but I also think it's, that it's, 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 it's a reality that is more and more possible. It's not just possible, that's actualized every day now. Right, and and it's and it's a way to to open up intellectual exchange just in general. Right? Absolutely, um, absolutely. You know, so why don't we take it back into our hands and do something meaningful that's going to last a long time? Right. Well, and in terms of this snowball, um, I mean, it, it does seem significant then that a journal like Cultural Anthropology is going open access. Absolutely. And we're actually, when this happened, we started working very closely with, with cultural anthropology because we, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Giovanni, Stefan, myself, we don't want this to be a competitive environment. We don't want to say, you know, X journal versus Y journal. Right. And it's like they've got their, of course, we have our own different intellectual uh, missions, you could call them, I guess, or intellectual repertoires. Sure. But open access is something that unites us. And we really, this is an opportunity to work together. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're working with Timothy Elfenbein very closely. Right. And we're sharing resources, sharing networks, sharing ideas. I mean, this has, this, this cannot, old divisions and old tudes of us and them, so on and so forth, they can't, they can't work in the open access uh, uh, program. Right. This movement, they can't. I would also just, I mean, to any listeners out there uh, in anthropology land or wherever, I would say go rogue, too. I mean... Uh, <laughs> No, I'm serious. I'm very serious about this. Uh, get you know, uh, t- take if, if you're not submitting to open access, you know, consider starting up a journal. Why not? And I think that uh, or or take your con- if you have a current journal, consider just you know throwing caution to the wind and giving it a shot. There is a network now of people who are working to help share and make sure this movement is successful, right. and it's massive. 
So I think, uh, but but you know, there there's always the need for for more people, right. and more voices being a part of that conversation as well. There needs to be questions of non-Euro American anthropologies involved in this. There needs to be questions of uh, you know access to minority uh, uh, anthropologies, and these things have to these things have to be t- debated and taken into account as well. Sure, but always yeah, the more the merrier. I, I want to make a quick point. You know, the, the, the world of music publishing is light years ahead of academic publishing in this regard. In part because they've been forced to be, right? Right. No, <laughs> because they've been forced to be. But I mean, even look at, go back to the birth of independent music publishing in the 80s and 90s. Huh. I mean, I, I tend to think in my own little musings that how is not so different from what Discord Records was doing in, in Washington, D.C. You know, <laughs> really not. I mean, you do it yourself, ethics, self-sustainability horizontal forms of accountability rather than vertical ones. I mean, I don't want to say that, like, we're Fugazi or anything. <laughs> I was going to say, like, <laughs> yeah. punk academia. You know? <laughs> yeah. But it, I think the, the ethic is quite similar, which is like, well, screw it. You know, I mean, if, if, if it's not working out within the established way of doing things, then why don't we just do it ourselves? Why don't we be bricoleurs and figure it out? Yeah, and there is a, and there is a utopian element to this, I mean, uh, as well. But but you know utopian thought is 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 not a bad thing. It pushes us forward in in very profound ways. Right. And uh, yeah, well, and I, I you know I think the, uh, the the quality of the work that comes out of how you know at least, at least to this date sort of bears out that you can have you know a good quality open access journal. Um, and 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 in this case, you know, it's something that was built out of scratch, right? It's not right, even and this cultural was, yeah. anthropology being moved over. This is something that's just, you know, built out, yeah, built by scratch. Well, yeah, when G- when Giovanni founded the project in early 2011, this was his. This, he founded it on a question. It, I mean, the intellectual aspects of how we're boiling up in in different conversations, different ways. But really, the 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 thing that that brought it into a into reality was him asking the question. You know, why, why doesn't anthropology have a, a general scope, high-end, open-access, peer-reviewed journal hmm. that's also copy-left? And, uh, you know, the answer was, yeah, huh, why don't we? Well, <laughs> you know, let's do it. And, uh, and, and damn it, he did it. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, now he's, and, and now he's slightly realizing why it wasn't there. He was like, oh, this is a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work. My God. I mean, but, uh, <laughs> but if you have committed people working on it, it, it makes it worth it. And it's fun. Yeah. You know, it's stressful like any other publication, but my God, we, we just put out the, our newest issue and the new website on Christmas Eve. And once that, once that new website was released and you start seeing, you get all the email responses, you see all the likes on Twitter and Facebook and everyone loving it and whatnot, it feels damn good. <laughs> and you know, that, you know that all that time and all that effort, you know, it's, it really is coming through and paying off. So, Yeah, I think yeah. so. Uh, well, do you have do you have any other thoughts that um, that you'd like to put out there? Just I guess just repeat what I said before. I mean, uh, the time to be a part of of the momentum of open access is now. It's not tomorrow. Right. So really, to to, to anyone listening, I guess I'll say again: submit your best articles to OA journals, and get your institution involved in networks and in fundraising opportunities. I mean, HowNet is one possibility. You know, mer- move and circulate knowledge about open access around and in your own networks and uh, move the content around you know and and uh, there's no reason not to be part of the be part of the snowball instead of getting smashed by it. <laughs> <laughs> great 
Well, um, Sean Dowdy, thanks so much for talking with us about open access and about how how uh, the journal um, has has contributed to this uh, burgeoning open access movement in anthropology and and one that hopefully will uh, spread to uh, other parts of the social sciences. Well, thank you, Bascom. It's been a it's been a pleasure and and a joy participating in this podcast. Sean just gave us some of the really strong justifications for why open access is an important idea, but I also wanted to get a bit of a sense of the history of open access, and especially its history within the discipline of anthropology. So I recently spoke with Alex Golub, known better to many of us as Rex from SavageMinds.org. And as we'll hear in a minute, Alex was very involved in open access efforts within anthropology for a long time. Sounds fascinating, but before we take a listen, we should also let our listeners know that Baskin and Alex ended up talking for almost a full hour about the history of open access in American anthropology. It's frankly one of our favorite interviews here at Anthropod Central that we've ever done, and it's been really hard for us to cut it down. So what we're going to do is play you just some short snippets from that interview. But if you're interested in these issues, then I highly encourage you to head over to our website, colinth.org slash conversations slash the number 24 where you can listen to the longer version of their conversation in the show notes to this episode. I'm talking today with uh, Alex Golub, uh, who's otherwise known to many in the anthropology world as Rex uh, from savageminds.org and other venues. Thanks for talking with me, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be here. Great. And um, a, a large part of the reason that uh, we wanted to talk with you is that you've been very active for several years on trying to bring anthropology into the open access world. So maybe you can start by um, talking a little bit about how you got interested in open access and, uh, and then sort of where, uh, where that took you. Yeah, it's a long story. And in many ways, it's not really my story, but it's, it's the story of a lot of people. Um, I, I think that my interest in open access comes originally out of my interest in open source software, um, which like a lot of people uh, who are in their 20s at the time, I messed around with during the big internet boom. And so open, um, open source software being software that uh, you could get hold of and you could sort of change it in any way you want and it was all sort of allowed. It was sort of built into the licensing that you could change it and put it back out into the world. Yeah, that's right. You could tinker with it. And a major part of the internet bubble of the late 90s and uh, early aughts was about um, using open source software to make bajillions of money the origins of things like Yahoo and Google. When I when I left um, to do my research in Papua New Guinea in 1999, Google didn't exist. And when I came back to work, take a job doing um, doing uh, computer stuff to support myself while I was writing up my PhD, Google had come out. I was managing an office and I was trying to train my staff to like navigate to find answers. I said, you know, the secret to being online is really knowing all of these directories on Yahoo. And it turned out that they were like, no, actually, there's this thing called Google that was discovered while you were in Papua New Guinea. (laughs) And um, that's what we use now. Um, So I think a lot of the, the, my interest in blogging 
um, and my interest in open access came out of this sense that there was something really revolutionary that was going on in that period. And it was something that I had missed. I felt like I had missed it being in PNG. Okay. Um, yeah, so, um, so I think that was sort of what got me started. And what really gave me the strong institutional push was uh, that I was serving um, on the Anthrosource Steering Committee when Anthrosource was in the process of being started. Right, and for those people who don't know, Anthrosource is basically the, the, the central repository for uh, the AAA's uh, various journals, uh, as sort of online access to those journals. The, I, I was not super involved with Anthrosource. There are many other people who are more involved than me. Right. But what happened was, in, in 2002, just right around there, um, the AAA realized that the, their print publication was not working for them. It wasn't supportable financially, and, and they felt like it wasn't working very well. So they decided to be the first out of the door in designing a brand new digital portal, portal was the term back then, uh, called Anthrosource. Uh, and they were going to get ahead of the game and make waves and demonstrate that a scholarly society could go digital <coughs> in brand new and amazing ways. And um, they ended up doing a lot of research. They ended up publishing articles about their plans, which are available on the Internet if you want to Google around for them. They had this plan to really produce this amazing next-generation um, portal that was going to demonstrate how digital scholarship was going to happen. And they ended up getting a grant from uh, the Mellon Foundation for like three quarters of a million dollars to wow. implement this brand new thing. Now, Mellon has always been very good about found funding these kinds of initiatives. Uh -huh. um, so, so the original Anthrosource that I signed on to when I was made a member of that committee was just completing this brand new next generation idea. Um, and it ended up uh, not working. It ended up being a failure for, for many different reasons. Um, yeah, I think partially the whole portal idea by about 2005, which was when I signed on, I think, um, had sort of disappeared. People were not into portals anymore. It was no longer going down Yahoo hierarchies. It was about Googling. Right. Um, about getting any information uh, just uh, by typing anything into a single text box that would take you anywhere rather than trying to like click down through journal then issue then looking through the articles and that sort of thing right yeah and the, the well the thing was that the text box that people typed into was now google yeah they didn't go to anthrosource portal and then go to that one location for anthropology Things. There was sort of that, that original model of sort of big metal in the center, the big com computer that had the single hosted service yeah. had been exploded and they had all gone to sort of networks. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that that sense of, of maintaining the portal, I think there was sort of a sense that they had, they had signed up for something very big. And ultimately, I think the problem was that it, it was not fundable or the AAA could not find a way to make it work financially. Right. Which I think speaks more to the the sort of constant <clears throat> dilemma of the AAA, which is that we don't have the sort of size of, um, we don't have the secretariat that we need to do a lot of stuff. We don't, um, the people in the office in Washington or Virginia or wherever it is now, don't have the capacity to do a lot of the things that we want done. Right. So that, that plan... 
yeah. to produce a next generation portal that would push boundaries turned into let's sign a contract with Wiley to put all of our articles behind a paywall so that we can make money. Right. So um, in a lot of ways, that quarter of uh, three quarters of a million dollars that Mellon gave them turned into, well, that didn't work, so let's sign up with this big publisher and close off access to all of our content. Which, you know, is actually, I think, a pretty embarrassing outcome. Yeah. But there were two good things that did come out of that moment, which I think people need to realize. The first thing is that that Anthrosource Steering Committee was the group uh, that put together the author's agreement that we now use in the AAA, which allows you to publish preprints. Oh, okay. So, and meaning that an author will get back, uh, will get back sort of the proofs of what's going to be going into the journal, and they can actually put that up on their own sites for anybody to read or, or do basically do what they want with them, right? Yeah, that's right. It's it's not it's not exactly clear to me what at what page, page stage something starts being um, uh, uh, approved and when it starts being finished, but certainly before it gets typeset, and okay. maybe even after. You can take that and you can put it online. They, they will let you do that uh, and still publish in their journal, which is really remarkable. And that was very ahead of its time. And that has given us a tremendous amount of freedom in the discipline. Basically, if everybody just saves their final draft of their paper, we could create a, an archive of all of our journals for free if we wanted. And that's something that's been very important to cultural anthropology. Uh-huh. Um, the other thing that they did was that uh, Wiley took a look at uh, the content in AAA journals and said, you know, if you want to open access stuff, you can do it from, I think it's 1964 and earlier. Okay. Um, we've, we've, we've run the math. Uh, we've decided that nobody wants to pay for that stuff anyway, so you might as well <laughs> open it up. Right. What happened was that much of the early history of anthropology is now open access. It's in the public domain because of that, which I think is absolutely great. And um, it renders a lot of the um, history of theory books that uh-huh. uh, you can that you can pay like sixty bucks for as textbooks. Those right. all that material is basically available. So some some good things did come out of that. Um, but I think that move to Wiley and the the liquidation of the anthropology the Anthrosource Steering Committee and its replacement by whatever they have now, the community for the future of the publishing and the electronic book or whatever. Right. Um, uh, that, that trend um, is what made people realize the AAA, although it's supposed to be our professional organization, is not acting in our interest. It's not pursuing things the way we want it to pursue it. And we're really going to have to be responsible for doing this on our own. And that was a difficult moment because, you know, the AAA, is, it's our association. Yeah. Um, but we, we felt like it was not acting in our interest. And around, so, around, what, around when was this? About 2006, I'd say. Okay. Still uh, several years back. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been going on for quite some time. So we started uh, a variety of different sites. We started a blog. We had a wiki. Uh, there was a Google group set up. Uh, and that generated a tremendous amount of interest. We began meeting at the AAAs to meet in, perpet- in person. And uh, I think that must have been even before the official move to Wiley. Um, but, but, but when that process was getting started in AAAs. 
Uh, and we were very active for a number of years. Uh, and I think that was really the origin of awareness of open access in anthropology today. What really happened was that there was this period of about four or five years, open access and awareness of open access really became the norm for the discipline. People really began to recognize that, that this is something that we should aspire to. It's, it's part of who we already are as scholars, and it really got it really got into people's characters. It really sunk in. And and was this uh, was this being realized through mostly online conversations or uh, in in the hallways of meetings or um, where do you where do you I, think the conversation really was happening? I think it was. I think it had to do with um, blogging mostly. I think it was the blogging community that was doing it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that blogging community was really tied into the network of sort of elite anthropologists who run things like uh, cultural anthropology. Uh -huh. You know, the, the people, the real high table anthropologists who went to the fancy schools and all that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so uh, I went to a fancy school and now teaches at a large state university. I feel like I've had a wide experience of, of uh, our discipline. Um, <laughs> oh, but, so you, 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 having, you having sort of done that path in a way. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think I I see what it's like now for my graduate students who don't go to a university where there's tons of private funds and, uh, you know, uh, a, an office in the administration that's designed to get you Fulbrights. Right. Uh, you know, I, I can see both sides of the coin now. Um, but Chris Kelty was really a key figure there. Um, and uh, Chris was able to speak to cultural anthropology uh, because he was familiar with a lot of the people who were involved with the journal and with funding, uh, founding the journal. Uh -huh. uh, there was a 2008 piece called Anthropology of Slash In Circulation. Uh, and uh, that piece was sort of the beginning of thinking about harnessing cultural anthropology interest with genre experimentation and uh, with uh, avant-garde experimentation more generally and connecting that with open access and digital anthropology. Uh -huh. So there is this intellectual connection between the people at cultural anthropology who are thinking, hey, this journal has been founded in the name of seeing what anthropology can do, what can it be, um, what is it stylistically, what is it as a genre, and then ha attaching that onto the, the initiative surrounding open access. So I think there was a strong sort of um, elective affinity between those those two things that made cultural anthropology particularly successful as a, as a place to realize this for open access mm -hmm. anthropology. It's not the only place. You know, in many ways, um, there are lots of people who have done what cultural anthropology is doing before. Huh. Um, you know, there are many open access journals. How is the right. one that's m most well known to anthropologists, but the Journal of Political Ecology has been open access ever since it started, which had to be in the late 90s. Right. Uh, but outside of anthropology, there's a million journals. Um, there's there's many. There are right. many people who have, have cracked this nut, but they haven't had to do it the way cultural anthropology has with the baggage of these complex and incredibly organic administrative entanglements with the AAA that have developed over the years. Right. And and now also being in, uh, through that also being entangled with a, an academic publisher. Mm-hmm. Right. 
That's right. And, and also, um, you know, one of the things that's really unique about cultural anthropology is that cultural anthropology doesn't want to give up on the kind of production process that, that for-profit journals have. I think a lot of other journals that have sort of um, blazed this trail before cultural anthropology have said, you know, we'll get somebody to spell check it and we'll lay it out in HTML. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah. they, don't, they don't have like, we'll get, we'll get three copy editors to go through it. Right. It has to adhere to this kind of standard and we're going to mark it up yeah. uh, with a markup language so that it looks good on the page. Get um, it typeset properly and all that. Yeah, I think that they really, you know, that's that's really the challenge about about doing what cultural anthropology wants to do is that they want all they want all the things that create overhead, but they're still <laughs> trying to go open access. Yeah. Um, but um, but cultural anthropology really wants to not just get that, you know, sort of let's let's catch eighty percent of the errors in our spell checking process the way that many other journals do. Cultural wow. anthropology really is aiming to be more like how. Where they're, they really want the whole production process, and they want it to look professional. Right. Um, yeah. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to, uh, to talk to me, Alex. Absolutely. Congratulations <laughs> to Cultural Anthropology for the great work they've done. So we've now heard a bit about the history of open access and some of the reasons for it, but I'm also interested to know why the board members of the Society for Cultural Anthropology actually decided to transform a well-respected 25-year-old journal into something that anybody could download for free. Well, Bascom, you're in luck, because I originally had the chance to sit down with the former president of the SCA, Brad Weiss, to talk to him precisely about these issues. Brad Weiss, welcome to Anthropod. Thanks very much, Jonah. My, my pleasure to be here. So, for starters, I was hoping you could tell us why cultural anthropology decided to make the shift from being a closed access journal to being an open access one. I'm very happy to, and it's, as you might imagine, it's something of a long story. And that really begins back when the Fortunes, Mike and Kim, were the editors of cultural anthropology. And at the time, both Mike and Kim, because of their background, because of their understanding of editorship, and also because of the changing character of our relationship with various publishers, the prospect of open access seemed like something that cultural anthropology might want to pursue. And the reason for that is that we made this very important shift, in, well, a series of shifts, really, that go, date back to um, the mid-2000s. In 2004, um, Anthrosource was developed as a product independently at the time of of Wiley Blackwell, but in relationship to the University of California Anthrosource Press. being the online database where anthropologists can search through the entirety of the AAA's published journals. Exactly. And what was critical about that is, is as you say, is that it was the entirety of the AAA fleet of journals. And, and that created some anxiety, even for big journals like us, because we thought, who is going to continue to be a member of the Society for Cultural Anthropology if all they need to be is a member of the AAA in order to get access to our journal. Because now if you're a member of the AAA and you pay the minimum fee that you can to join any other section, you get access to every single journal in the AAA. But we were really concerned that it would, meant, it would mean really substantially declining revenues. And at the time, it didn't so much mean declining revenues from membership, because in fact our membership grew during that period. But it did mean that there were substantial costs 
that were associated with the University of California Press publishing contract that we had, and they were they were they were bad for cultural anthropology insofar as we were losing a good deal of money, mostly uh, for reasons that we couldn't honestly quite figure out. What happened at the time was we couldn't quite figure out why the charges for archiving and managing and consolidating and coordinating all of the materials that we were producing as a as a journal that University of California was charging us on an annual basis, why they were what they were and how they could be perhaps reduced or altered or whatever. And that's when Wiley Blackwell came along. Well, that posed a lot of problems right off the bat for a lot of people who felt that it was a serious question that needed to be considered. What does it mean for a scholarly society to shift its publication from a university press to a for-profit press, which of course Wiley Blackwell is. And because of the misgivings that many people had even at the time about the implications of essentially providing a great deal of free labor in the form of scholarly service to a publisher who was then going to profit from, not only profit from that free labor, but profit by selling that product back to our own home institutions, namely our libraries and universities. There are a lot of people who thought that was very problematic. So reviewers, uh, journal editors and such don't get paid for their work. Exactly. And, and frankly, authors as well, of course. Anytime an author <laughs> produces uh, the content of the journal... They don't get paid for it. They get recognized for it in all sorts of ways, perhaps. But nonetheless, there is this relationship of service and labor and product being provided to Wiley Blackwell. Who, not that they don't provide a service. They provided a, the service of consolidation and distribution and, and dissemination. But they also made a profit at that, on that at our expense. So there were many people who, even all through the Wiley Blackwell contract, that it posed some questions that, that the AAA might just be pushing a little bit harder on, including devising open access alternatives. Now, no section of the AAA, including the Society for Cultural Anthropology, can independently decide that it wants to publish its journal uh, in any format or by any mechanism of distribution that it wants, because we are all part of the AAA, but it did mean that it, we, we were not in a position to simply say, let's just take cultural anthropology open access because we think we can make it work. What we needed was some kind of agreement with the AAA. And basically by continuously bringing up this issue with AAA, and in particular with Una Schmid, who is currently the director of publications, we were able to, um, and, 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 this, and the board itself was able to sort of come to an understanding of the prospects for open access to see that it might be a viable Possibility. We didn't all start off as enormous advocates for open access. Many of us are still uh, skeptical is too strong a word for it, but I would say cautious and conservative with respect to the prospects for open access. And what happened then, what happened in 2012, is that UNA came to the AAA as a whole with a proposal. A proposal that said, Wiley Blackwell has agreed that one section of the AAA one publishing section of the AAA, can take its journal, Open Access, for the remainder of the AAA Wiley-Blackwell Anthrosource contract, which runs through the end of 2017. Well, as it happened in, in the fall of 2012, just a year ago now, we were the, the only section that expressed an interest in going Open Access. And we were able to do that for a, number, for a, a lot of reasons. First of all, as, I, as I've indicated, we'd already, we'd already been thinking about it for quite a long time, and I, I know for a fact that most other sections had not 
given it a great deal of thought. And the second thing that we did is we convened a task force that consisted of some really smart people who knew a whole lot about publishing and in particular knew about the prospects for open access. So this group met and, uh, well, Skyped, and, um, and produced a determination and a rationale for our board which said, this is something that we should pursue. We, we thought that there were definitely some uh, risks entailed. We were really not certain what the economic implications might be. We could really not even make predictions about what those implications might be. But we ultimately decided that there were reasons worth pursuing that would encourage us to go open access and that the reasons to be cautious about it were essentially that it was unpredictable. And given the fact that everything is unpredictable <laughs> and, and whatever model we pursued would likely have to change within the next few years anyway, that didn't seem to be a compelling reason not to, to pursue that option. So that is how we came to the winter of 2013, just about a year, just about February of this year, when we were authorized to pursue open access conversion. And we have ever since that day been sort of ratcheting up towards that process. There's a ton yeah. on what you just said, and I want to kind of disentangle just a bit of it. Sure. Um, the first thing is just about the finance of it. So often, one of the things you hear when you enter into discussions about open access are worries over the financial model. You know, the idea that whereas once you charged people for something, now you're giving it away for free. And one of the things that's really interesting in your thing is, is about how much the financial uh, logics of the current system actually pushed you and the rest of the uh, Society for Cultural Anthropology into the decision to go open access. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's, I think as you put it, it's the logic of that economic model that we found disconcerting and that encouraged us or motivated us to think about open access. But at the same time, we were very cautious about the alternative economic models that are out there, like, you know, Elsevier would be del delighted if every author just paid them thousands of dollars to publish their work in an Elsevier journal, and we definitely did not want to um, uh, endorse, uh, endorse that model. Um, we did not want to find other fees that would, you know, require our libraries to make a massive contribution or something along those lines. So, so I can tell you a bit about some of the economic circumstances that has enabled us to pursue open access for the particular window that we are pursuing. It's important to keep this in mind. We are going open access through the end of 2017. We anticipate, and it is our hope, that we can make it work successfully so that Cultural anthropology will remain an open access journal beyond that point, and we have, and we're optimistic that that will be the case. But what we do know now is that we needed to have the economics in place that would permit us, at least through 2017, to go open access. And so, what are some of those um, economics? Okay, the first is that we, frankly, made a great deal of money on the contract with Wiley Blackwell. The royalty that they provided us increased uh, our funds substantially, and, and while our funds are now are not, you know, they're not infinite, <laughs> but they are, we're we're optimistic that they are sufficient at the moment to permit us to make this conversion. Now, having said that, what the important thing to keep in mind is what well, what are our expenses, right? If we're concerned about, um, we can all well, I think we can all understand how open access 
has the potential to reduce your revenues because if people can get what you're giving away for free, how, why would they pay for it? But the bigger question in some ways is, well, what, what can we do about the expenses that we have that are entailed in producing the journal? And we have made a commitment as a board to maintain the highest quality and standards of, of production that we have established already in the, in the field. We are not going to compromise on the editorial process, in other words. And that means that we are going to continue to employ a managing editor whose responsibilities are going to be substantial and significant. The other thing that I'd really yeah, like to ahead. hear about is not just the economic circumstances that made the move possible in the first place, but also yeah. what the kind of scenarios are that the society needs moving forward. That's the inverse of the question. How what, uh, One question is expenses and the other question is revenues. And so, so when we come to revenues, what are we going to do to try and expand our, our range of revenues to, so that we can meet all, of all, all these expenses? One thing that we're going to do is we're going to try and ex- increase our membership. And so we have plans in the work for, for a membership drive. And we are going to make an effort to have a membership drive and use open access as the motivation that promotes membership because it is something that's terribly attractive. And we have seen over the last four or five years that we are now the most subscribed section of the AAA. We have more members than any other section in the AAA, and that has something to do, undoubtedly, with the fact that these are issues that have been circulating. Certainly, they have a lot to do with our our conferences. They have a lot to do with the content of the journal. They have a lot to do with the internship program. But... I would imagine that we will continue to see membership grow. And we've had a pretty modest, we've, we've maintained a modest fee. We, in, we diversified the kinds of fees that we, uh, kinds of memberships that we have so, so we can charge different kinds of fees. We, I think one thing that we can definitely do is push to make more people who are currently subscribers into sustaining members, which is a, brings an additional charge, but it's a quick and easy way to just sort of say, I'm willing to spend what amounts to a, a few dollars a month uh, in addition, in order to support what what what, what um, culture anthropology is doing, the second thing that we have done already with with sort of modest success, and we might see how successful it is going forward, is made a direct appeal to departments of anthropology to say, "Look, we've embarked on this really interesting uh, project. We would really appreciate it if you would support us and given them a range of ways that they can do so, primarily by giving us funds." And the third and final thing, and and it, frankly, the most um, what I think has the most potential, but also is the most incohate at the moment, is the prospect of reaching out beyond our section and even beyond the AAA to look for partners in publication and look for partners in other scholarly societies that are also interested in going open access and, are, and would be willing to, frankly, share some of the costs that are associated with that. That last one, as I say, I think has the most potential um, because ultimately I'm only interested in open access if it can be provide a model for future publication across, certainly across the AAA and perhaps, you know, even more broadly than that. If, uh, so I honestly think that an open access model that fairly pays its own way, that doesn't simply say, oh, this is a free journal, but says, no, this is a journal that is that has been made freely available to people because of the contribution that people who recognize the value of this publication have made to it as making possible. What about these kind of cautions and worries that the board had and, and to a certain extent still have about the, uh, the pitfalls of an open access model? Well, I think the cautions are twofold. One is, one is simply that it, it sort of uh, shifts the 
the expense from the from the publisher to to the producer. In other words, if if the cost of open access simply gets borne by our authors, that would be a very very bad thing. And so so the first sort of concern that we had is, as I said, that um, uh, that the that the cost of publication will simply shift to authors, and we are strongly strongly committed to not letting that happen. But I am also optimistic that we are going to create the networks and relationships with other societies that will permit the economies of scale to kick in that allow it to be a sustainable model in the future. And those are the two, you know, again, there's, uh, you know, as soon as we saw that by going, that once, once Anthrosource got, got disseminated and we saw that, in fact, our membership did not decline, that was a really uh, illuminating moment for many of us because we realized, wow, we can give away what, what we treasure and it actually encourages more people <laughs> to, <laughs> to participate. So I would say demonstrating what most had to say about the, <laughs> the gift. The more you give it away, the more powerful it becomes. And that has certainly been the case with, the, with, what, cultural anthropo- with what our society has done. So we anticipate that open access is going to uh, contribute to the, both the reputation and the participation in in our society. So uh, those were all, you know, powerful reasons to to pursue it. But but the, again, the caution was: gee, if we give it away, what, what makes you think anybody's going to want to continue to pay anything? But we'd already seen that by giving giving it away through Anthrosource, in effect, or at least bundling it with other journals, it it actually didn't undermine our ability to to um, garner more members. And so if people listening to this podcast decide that they would like to help support this experiment, how can they do so? There are two ways that they can do so. The first, and what I would encourage everybody to do, is they can become a member of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. And if you're already a member of the Society for Cultural Anthropology, you could consider joining as a sustaining member. I sound like I'm talking to you from your national public radio station. We, we in fact, call this our, the NPR model of, of, of membership, right? Beyond that, what you can do, and this is pretty simple, if you are fortunate enough to have access to a professional scholarly institution, if you are a student, if you are a faculty, uh, even if you are a casual faculty member, um, if you have access to a university library, please, continue. even when we go open access, please continue to look for cultural anthropology essays, articles, products, reviews, etc., through Anthrosource. Because the fact that we continue to be a part of Anthrosource means that we continue to make a royalty from Wiley Blackwell through the end of 2017. And so you are in no, I know it sounds a little bit contradictory, but you are in no way undermining open access <laughs> by accessing the materials that Cultural Anthropology publishes through Anthrosource. You're helping to make open access work by pursuing that, by going through Anthrosource. And then what you're doing is you are enabling all of those people out there, some of whom I hope might be listening to this, who don't have access to a university library because they are not affiliated with an institution because they come from some part of the world where their libraries do not subscribe to Anthrosource because they are an independent scholar in far-flung places. And we have already heard from lots and lots of folks who, who are, uh, you know, deeply engaged with communities in places like Papua New Guinea and, and Latin America 
and, and Southern Africa, where there are lots and lots of scholars who really would benefit from access to um, cultural anthropologies. Uh, essays and who don't have any of those those kinds of affiliations. So you're actually contributing to the open access project by going through a paid portal to get our material. Great. Well, Broward, thank you so much. It's absolutely been my pleasure. So now we've heard a lot about the financial side of things, but from what I understand, there are all sorts of technical challenges as well to going open access. Right, and that was surprising for me because although I had been following the debate on open access for a while, I never really heard about these issues of publishing and distributing open access journals. So I was really happy that I had the chance to sit down with Tim Elfenbein, managing editor uh, for the Journal of Cultural Anthropology, last November at the American Anthropological Association meeting in Chicago. Tim Elfenbein, welcome to Anthropod. Thank you. <laughs> so, for starters, why don't you tell us a little bit about your entry into CA and mm -hmm. where the discussion was at when you entered into CA? Right. If you go back to the website and look at our announcement and our web discussion that was going on, you will see me in there as the skeptical voice because I was interested in this, but also worried that there, at that point there was a lot of rah, rah, yay, we're doing OA, and it seemed to be not enough discussion of, okay, you know, what, what is entailed in this, uh, what's the model, how it's going to happen, and that's the kind of information I, I wanted. At that point, I had no idea that, that, that they were going to need a managing editor and that I would be it. So I, when all this was happening with CA, I was off at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill doing an information science degree, a master's degree, and I was one of the few publishing people among the librarians uh, when that happened. And so I was, I, I think there's, um, in general, there's, there are some misunderstandings about publishing. I quite, well, I think that the publishers and libraries have slightly misaligned interests. In some ways they go together, in some ways they don't. Before I went to, the, to high school, I was working at Duke University Press. So I shaped much of my understanding of, of publishing and, ha and how it happens uh, practically comes from my University Press experience. So I know all the the, the effort and and you know uh, the, the labor and infrastructure and you know sort of long-standing history of, of publishing and what goes into creating publications. Uh, so that was what was visible to me. Uh, what is visible to a lot of librarians is the price, and not a whole lot else. And they and they sort of project an image of publishing and publishers as this sort of big anonymous entity. Well, that's problematic because it's a much more um, complicated and variegated terrain. One of the classes I took was with the scholarly communications librarian from Duke, uh, Kevin Smith, who's a, a big OA advocate. He comes more from the, the law side and the copyright side. So I took a class on law for librarians with him, and I was the guy always standing up and saying, but, um, and, and arguing back with him. And we had a lot of some good conversations, and I think he, he was a good teacher because he, he had his position, and, and we would argue through these things. Um, he is the one who knew Ann and Charlie, and we're, and we're helping them 
to decide uh, what we were going to do, trying to, to convince them that they wanted to go open access with, with cultural anthropology. And so it's actually through my, my sort of standing up in class and arguing that I became known to Kevin, and he suggested that I talk to Ann and Charlie when this position opened up. Well, this is interesting, too, because usually when we talk about open access, we're talking primarily about a financial decision. There's right. tons of worries. How are journals going to make up their money if they're giving away something for free that they once um, yep. you know, sold to people? Right. But in fact, you're saying that the decision to go open access is actually more than just a financial decision. Yeah, it is. So for me, the main the main importance for us going away is actually, I mean, it is financial, but for me in my position, it's not fi- the financial parts. For the managing editor, it's about we, we have to cobble together our own publishing system. Uh, and there's a lot of different pieces and parts to that. So, you know, I think uh, others, uh, you know, have the assumption that um, that it's the internet. We can just throw documents up on it and that's publishing. And that is a certain kind of publishing, but it's not exactly what you can do with an established journal and uh, for, for a number of reasons. And so, so it's useful for me coming in with an information science background and a publishing background is that I can, I can tell you about all of the infrastructure that is in fact invisible that the board didn't know about, that, that authors and readers don't know about because it's, it's, it's infrastructure, it's invisible. Uh, that we now have to be uh, start discussing because we're taking it on. So for me, that's actually the biggest uh, change I- I- in this experiment. So okay, uh, I guess to step back, for me, what open access the, be- the, the the for me the best way to understand open open access is as an experiment. Um, so it's not our salvation. It's not the end of publishing as we know it. It's not. It's not the kids taking over. You know, it's uh, it, there's so much information and sort of uh, assumptions and ideologies loaded into this term uh, that it's become quite problematic. So for me, what the, for me what it's useful to think about is as an experiment. And as with other experiments, it means we have to be really attentive to the kinds of things we can learn from it. And as we do this, like good ethnographers, we should be paying very close attention to all the things that we didn't think about that suddenly come to the fore. So I'm, I'm in a position in part because I'm the guy who's actually in the trenches trying to make sure it's going to work. But I'm also, uh, luckily, have enough anthropology background that I like. I, that this this is my field site. This is exactly where I'm trying to figure out what people think we're doing, uh, what you know, the different uh, interests involved. I mean, they, you know, so that's what makes it an interesting experiment. I want to return to this point in just a second, but mm-hmm. first I'd like to uh, ask you if you could just elaborate a little bit about what you mean by this invisible archi- architecture, yeah. that's uh, yeah. this invisible infrastructure, rather, that's that's undergirding mm-hmm. what it means to be a journal. Well, okay, so so I guess I would say that the, there's a couple of sort of broad systems that are required for the circulation and preservation and display of, uh, of material, documents. So one of them is where do your documents live uh, and how do people, where do people come upon them? Uh, and usually this is the platform that people read from. So we're used to right now Anthrosource and the, and the Wiley Online Library if we're, if we're talking digital. The big academic databases. Yeah. Yeah, so so that's how so in a sense that's how people like when they get to the document, um, they will see they'll see one web page that gives you some metadata. You can then choose to go and and see an HTML page, you know, an HTML version of the full text, or you can download a PDF. So that's part of the infrastructure. 
there is the, the databases that, that are behind it. What the digital means is that we're slowly moving from document-based regimes to database-based regimes. So the, all of this stuff is stuff that sits in a database somewhere and that we can call up and search in different ways. So beyond the, uh, the actual document, which is what we're all focused on, equally as important uh, now is the data about that document and how it is created, how it's structured, how it flows between things. So uh, digital publishing is all about not just publishing documents, but, pu but publishing data and getting them into the proper streams. So, you know, we're not sending a physical object out to people to read. We are sending information of, uh, about our, our document all over the place and then hoping people will come back to our location to read it. So a lot of the, the, the infrastructure uh, for publishing now is data-oriented. So whether this is DOI, so digital object identifiers, so that people can actually always find your object somewhere on the internet. And these are the unique IDs that get assigned to every single article that gets published yep. on the, um, an Android. Only if they're part of the system. So yeah. this is one of these things that it's a standard that works when people adopt it. This is one example of the infrastructure. Uh, Crossref is the organization that assigns DOIs. And it, it, you know, it was put together, I don't know, probably 10 years ago by the publishers because they realized that once things are on the internet, it's harder to find them because often they move around. So they decided they needed to create their own standard and their own sort of infrastructure for that standard. So we became a member of the, this nonprofit organization. Uh, when we publish, we will have to put together a packet of metadata that we send to Crossref that both identifies the URL that, that is presently where our objects are and they will give us a handle which is the DOI and so if, if we change you know the location on our server of where something is or we change servers I go back to the registry and tell them okay we've moved this so that's just that's one little piece of the infrastructure but it's uh, but it's central to to sort of this new this new documentary regime of how things exist in database uh, you know distributed database and networks in a sense, this is what we have to go through is all of these these pieces of a system and we have to put it together and pull together all the services to make publishing work in a digital environment. A lot of journals that I know of that have been at the forefront of open access yeah. are kind of these new initiatives. Yeah. So yeah. we have How, the Journal of Ethnographic Theory and Anthropology yep. or Plus One in the yep. Sciences. Yep. I imagine there must be more logistical challenges with a journal that right. has such a long and storied history as cultural anthropology suddenly... Yeah transforming itself to an open access journal. So I was yeah. hoping you could shed some light on that as well. Yeah, so this has actually been one of the more sort of interesting things to uh, for me to think about what this means that we're an established journal already because a, a huge amount of the of the uh, journals that have gone open access are startups. And startups have a very different set of concerns. Um, so one is, and you know, I've been talking a lot to the folks from How. So I, I think, like there, like most startups, the initial problem is making sure you have a good uh, founding vision that is that is uh, intellectually interesting. And this is, I mean, this is why How is, has succeeded immensely in this because they've generated intellectual interest first. So they're at the point now that they have uh, what two and a half years worth of material, and because they publish like 600 pages. An issue, which is incredible. They now have enough material that things like searching and filtering become issues. So when you are just starting a new journal, everything is in the present, and you're trying to you're trying to inform people in the present that something new is happening. 
when you are a journal that's been around for, for what, we've been around for like 27 years, which is still, you know, that's not that long, but we have, we have a lot of issues now. Issue, like issues in both senses. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a lot of content, so the question of search and discoverability becomes very different. So that's, so that's one of the issues, it's just we've got more material and it's not, the, the way people can become aware of, about it is different. I guess the other perspective that it changes for me is that I'm not looking to see whether we're going to survive past two or three years, which is, again, I think the, the main concern for most startups. For me, the, the concern is five years in the future or ten years in the future, how we sustain this. So to, we're, we're here for the long haul, and so, so a lot of the questions we're asking is, how does, how does these transformations, how do we fold that into a longer-term project? And it's, to me, that's the big question. Now, for me, one of the coolest things to return to the topic we were talking about earlier, I think many people have this image of academics doing this high-minded production and then handing it off to this completely separate staff that then pushes it out in this very technical operations. But in talking to you, I think I've gained an appreciation from your own background of how much the writings on the digital humanities and on the anthropology of the internet mm-hmm. have influenced the way that you and cultural anthropology as a whole has come to think of this decision to move open access. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the influences of these academic writings right. on the seemingly technical right. mundane decisions. Right. Well, I think we're not really, we're, we're getting closer to that, but we're not there yet. Um, so I think that the, the, the main impetus behind, uh, behind the open access, sort of the push, is first and foremost ethical, having to do with the politics of academic knowledge. So I, I think the way that anthropologists and other scholars have first come to the open access movement is, you know, anthropology in particular, we're a discipline that is very attuned to the margins. And so we are attuned to, I mean, this is, this is what primes us for seeing, okay, we want our stuff out there. We've already had a long disciplinary conversation about what it means for us to write, what it means for the people that we write about to be reading it, who, you know, the, the global inequalities. And so we're attuned to the margins uh, and who isn't able to get this stuff and inequality. So I think that's the initial impetus. That's not yet getting to the infrastructure. And in a sense, this has been my frustration with a lot of the the discussion so far about open access is that it's a political movement and the the next phase beyond saying huh this might be a good idea for ethical and political reasons the next movement is to say okay what what is actually entailed in making a change here and there's a lot of things that are entailed and I think it, the further we go into this and the more examples we have, the more we actually sort of surface what those things are and what's possible and what's not possible. So for me, coming, coming from publishing, again, I, I, I get defensive about the, the picture of the mendacious publisher. Like that's our, to me, if that's the only way we can explain things is because the publishers are greedy, then we are terrible at explaining behavior. Um, we're much better than that. To me, that's an indication that we haven't actually looked a little bit deeper and, and understood this this terrain, because there are publishers who are uh, do things we like and do things we don't like. There are the publishers that are making all sorts of money off us that we actually we also rely on in many ways. So it seems to me it's it's a it's a much more confused terrain. But it, but that requires some requires we get past the initial picture and get to the details. This is why we need we need ethnographers who are, who are in this terrain. 
Um, so I'm sort of de facto becoming that, <laughs> um, uh, which is fine. I mean, that's to me why it's partly interesting. But but that's why, like when I say I was, I have been frustrated with the conversation is because I think it, it often boils down to uh, you know questions of political will, and this is about so much more than political will. And that's why, to me, like to, to talk about this as an experiment is, is useful because that's how you surface things you weren't expecting. And people can read more about your thoughts and your analysis of this in uh, forthcoming cultural anthropology. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Ali, uh, Ali Kenner, and I. Ali was the last managing editor who I took over from. Uh, we we're going to have a section in the May issue that's discussing open access with a number of other folks. And, uh, and Ali and I are in an interesting position because we've been the, the infrastructure and the labor that's gone into the background of this. So Ali just asked me to, to co-write this with her a couple days ago. So it'll be my first attempt to sort of formalize my observations and put it down on paper. So I, I'm actually quite excited to, to see what we'll come up with. So am I. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, Tim Elfenbein, thank you so much for coming to Anthropod. Absolutely. Finally, we couldn't have an episode on open access without hearing from some of you. So while we were at the AAAs, we got some quick unfiltered reactions at the Society for Cultural Anthropology's open access party. I'm Monica Barra and I'm a doctoral student. And I think it's awesome if they can do it to be open access. I think it's a great thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my name's Matt Canfield. I'm a doctoral student at NYU. And I think open access is really important to expanding anthropology's publics and for having more people engaged in the discipline and our critical approaches. My name is Brandon Fisher and I'm a graduate student at the New School for Social Research. And I think the idea of going uh, open access is a laudable one. Hey, I'm Brandon Costello-Kuhn. I'm a lecturer at RPI. And what do you think of so, Open Access? I think it's fantastic. Uh, I've been looking forward to it for a really long time, and it makes me want to publish there that much more now. Okay, I'm Jessica Catalino, Associate Professor of Anthropology at UCLA and Treasurer for the Board of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. And what do you think of CA going to Open Access? It's been a lot of work. It's exciting. It's a grand experiment. And while a lot of the focus has been on the um, politics of publishing and the financial landscape of publishing, I tend to think of this as an opportunity for new forms of governance and new forms of collectivity and democracy, not even so much in terms of the access to publishing, which is important, but in terms of a new po a model of information generation and publishing. And I hope that we think organizationally as well as about the kind of issues of publishing more broadly that people are talking about. Alright, so Mr. Silverstein, um, what do you think about open access and CA's decision to go open access? I think it's a fantastic decision and something that I've already experienced in a couple of other journals. Um, and uh, you have no idea how wonderful it is to be actually read by people who probably otherwise wouldn't. <laughs> what do you think of how CA is going open access? I'm sure my own sentiments resonate with, I'm sure, with what everyone else has already said, but I think it's bold, I think it's really forward-looking. No, I think it's I think it's amazing and I I think it's um, 
it'll serve as a, a model for other journals, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, what do you think of SCA or CA going open access? <laughs> the reason that the Society for Cultural Anthropology was founded in the first place back in the 1980s was that uh, there was a recognition that the American Ethnological Society already did what it could do and what we all needed a, a blue chip association to do, which is to kind of authorize the best work in the field. And so there was this guarantee that that the ship would run well because it was being well managed by this other society. And so I think the original impetus for the SCA, and this comes into the question of open access, was just to think of trying to extend the same really strong work, but always do it in a slightly different way and to and to push the envelope a little bit in a way where there wouldn't be anything to lose. Why not, it, considering that cultural anthropology is already in these excellent hands with the AES, why not have an organization that was always going to be devoted to um, venturing out initially into other fields, venturing out into other disciplines, uh, being uh, promoting experimental work as its, as its express purpose rather than just one of the things that it did. And I think that in that kind of context, open access is exactly what the field, as we all know, has been talking about the past five or seven years. I think the thing that I want to be most proud of for SCA doing this is in fact not that we know that it's the right thing to do. We don't actually know that it's the right thing to do. There's a lot at stake if this goes wrong. Uh, yes, there's a kind of an, an appreciation of the democratic impulse behind this, but, but we also all know the quiet secret of all of this is that you can run a journal on a ton of volunteer work, but you need paid labor, you need you need uh, qualified, appreciated labor to do it right. And so we could be making a big mistake perhaps by doing this, but what I think is fantastic about us, but we all know that it's the right thing to try. We all know that it's the right experiment for now. And I think SCA is probably the only section, for what it's worth, of the AAA, if people pay attention to sections. I'm just really proud that, that, the, that the group took this leap and, and I think it's going to work. I think it's the right thing to do. I totally think it's the model uh, that we should be hopefully imitating more and more. And let's see where it goes. But this is the trademark of what the whole society was founded for. So. I'm Brian Larkin. I teach at Barnard College in Columbia, New York. What I think of the open access is it's going to put a lot of responsibility and pressure on SEO because we're going to lose all our funding by going open access. So we have to still support the scholarship and especially support the web development that's been taken off like crazy. And we're not quite sure how we're going to fund it by going open access. So we're going to have to restructure the entire way. We really want to reach people with open access. But on the other hand, we now have to generate a financial system whereby we can support their outreach, both through the journal and through the website. But the upside is huge. There's no question. Yeah, the upside for us is that you can reach all sorts of different communities. And anthropology means anyone who wants to come to our website, they can get all sorts of information. They can get access, you know, like we had a, someone said yesterday, someone literally wanted to get an article that he had heard about, and the article was $14. One article was $14. All that goes away. You can send out announcements about articles. People can get that immediately wherever they are in the world. It's fantastic. The upside is huge. There's no question about that.
So there you have it. Thanks again to Sean Dowdy, Alex Golub, Brad Weiss, Tim Elfenbein, and all of you who talked to us at the AAAs. How, the Open Access Journal of Ethnographic Theory, can be found at howjournal.org. That's H-A-U-Journal.org. Savage Minds, which is a really great anthropology blog, can be found at savageminds.org. Special thanks today to Grant Otsky and Ted Woods for their help editing this podcast. Both the celebratory music at the beginning of this episode and our usual jazzy theme are by Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff on incompetech.com. You can find more information about each of today's guests as well as about cultural anthropology going open access at our website, colanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. In our latest issue, you can also find a wonderful editorial from Brad Weiss going into more detail about why and how the journal made this decision. And because it's open access, you can now read it and all of the other articles there for free. There, you can also find our show notes where, along with more information on each of our interviewees, you can hear my extended interview with Alex Golub. You can also find all of the previous podcast episodes at our website. And we encourage you to subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook by searching for Cultural Anthropology and on Twitter at Colanth. Finally, we'd love to hear what you all think about open access as well. So get in touch with us at our site, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email at anthropod at Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropod. See you next time.